John 12, 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees, I have to enjoy this because these are the bad guys and they're mad at each other right now. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses, excuse me, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now watch this. This is the Savior. He says this. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. These are the days before the Son of God will give his life as the Lamb of God on the cross of Calvary when he spills his blood in that willing death that he took on the blood that he shed is sufficient payment for sin. Jesus was sent from the Father in order to come to this earth and live a perfect, sinless life as a human. He was fully human. Yes, he was fully God, but he was fully human. And every single hour of every day of his life, Jesus Christ always did those things that pleased his heavenly Father. He never sinned in word. He never sinned in thought. He never sinned in action. He lived the life that you and I were called to live, but all of us clearly have failed to live. That is why he was the perfect substitute, the substitutionary lamb, the sacrificial lamb. As in all of the um, animal sacrifices in Israel, when the lamb was slain, it sends the sins of the one bringing the lamb. They put their hands on the lamb. The priest would then slay the lamb, and their sins were atoned for for another year. Jesus Christ came as God's lamb, and he died once, giving his life, giving his blood, so that any and all that believe on him can have their sins eternally atoned for. The blood of the lamb cleanses us from all manner of sin. Now, when we approach that, we often approach that reality theologically. We have heard it as Christians, most of us, so often that I will just say for myself, it is easy for me to study it, feel just a moment of gratitude, but then move on quickly from it to some other thing. And today, I just can't do that. As a matter of fact, today, we don't even actually get to the cross 
We study these handful of verses from John 12 in the week leading up to the cross, and I see Jesus maybe more than I have in a long time in this passage as Jesus the man. Not so much Jesus uh, God, deity, but Jesus the man. And so as I go through this, I've thought all week long about, Lord, my need is to relate to him in this releasing of his humanity to you fully surrendered to your will and i appreciate the fact that a lot of people teachers preachers and christians want to minimize this part of it they want to say that he was so god that these human trial components were merely forensic they were they were technicalities that oh he was so much god that the human component yeah it was there but it wasn't that big of a deal and i beg to differ I say to you that he felt every weight and said, Jeff, I don't know about that. Well, he's about to say it to you. Argue with me all you want. I would hesitate to argue with him. And so let's see what's going on. This is a narrative. There's not a lot of doctrine and theology in this. It's a narrative. I want us to get into it. I want us to put on the garments that they would have been wearing 2,000 years ago in Passover week in Israel. Some historians say there might have been up to a million people in Jerusalem during that week. They were coming for the key week of all of the Jewish festivals and all of the celebrations and then, of course, approaching Passover. And so the city was abuzz. The surrounding areas were abuzz. There were people that were coming from all over Israel to come to the city for this week. And on top of that, there were rumors that were being passed about, about the maverick rabbi named Jesus, the one who hailed from Nazareth, who is raising people from the dead and just recently had raised a man from the grave that had been dead for four days who had already entered into decay, who was wrapped and sealed in his, his tomb, and Jesus called him forth, and behold, this man is with us today. And so this amazing electricity would have been in the atmosphere as Holy Week approached uh, for Jesus and his followers. But I want to start out by seeing something, because Jesus never got buzzed by the buzz of the crowds. Jesus never, ever gave himself to the fickleness of the crowds. For three years he had been walking his ministry out and the crowds had crested and fallen and crested and fallen, crested and fallen. There were times where the people loved him, there were times where people were ashamed of him. He'd do the mighty miracles and he would feed them with fish and chips on the hillside and they would come in throngs, but when he preached repentance against dead religion, they would leave him in the fear of the Jews. And so Jesus had never given himself to the crowd. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 2, and kind of an enigmatic statement is made that Jesus would not fully give himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. So he was never fooled, but let's look at the nature of the crowds in verses 12 through 18. It's very simple. In the first couple of verses that we read, you find that crowds then are kind of like crowds today. They're eager for celebration. It says the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast had heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what do they do? As Jesus is entering in, we were familiar with the scene. They took the branches of palm trees and they go out to meet him eagerly. And they're crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so I, I know that we're not first century Hebrew worshipers, but they are in essence, in all actuality, they are declaring that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. They have now moved away from this this kind of doubtful skepticism, maybe, maybe not, and there are enough of them now, common people, not the religious leaders primarily, common people that are saying, this is he, this is the one. Who could do the miracles that he does and not be the one? Who could preach like he preaches and not do the one? And who could raise from the dead and not, not be our king? Blessed is the one who's coming in the name of the, our God. Blessed is the one who is the king of Israel. And so the whole city is stirring like it has not been stirred. Listen, messianic hope is what drove the worshipers in Israel. Every baby boy that was born for generations, they would wonder, is this the, the Messiah? Is this the one that will come? Is this the one that will return the glory to Israel, that will topple the Gentiles and the pagans and let the glory that the Lord has covenanted with us over, let it come back to Israel? Is this baby boy going to grow up to be the one? In every family and every generation, the answer was no, no, no. But now here is a 33-year-old man approaching the city, and they're saying, it's him. It's him. They're eager to celebrate. 
Because their concept of the Messiah was nothing like we looking back see the Messiah as. Their concept was the conquering king that will put the filthy Gentile dogs down and return the political, the geopolitical glory to Israel. And of course, we know that is not what Jesus came to do in his first advent. And so what they missed was this, and this is interesting. Jesus doesn't get swayed by the, for lack of a better word, all the hoopla. Look at what Jesus does in verses 14 and 16. Whereas the crowd's eager to find that reason to celebrate, they're very slow to recognize humility. It says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And just as it is written, and this is from uh, Zechariah 9.9, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, this is prophetic, centuries earlier. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then the footnote that John adds is his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when he raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So what Jesus is doing, Jesus' life was characterized by, again, by always doing those things that please the Father. Jesus testified, I only do what the Father's doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. So there was in the life of Jesus as the Son of Man the constant awareness that he wanted to do those things that please the Father. And part of pleasing the Father is the fulfillment of prophetic Scripture. And so Jesus is now being hailed as the Messiah, and he intentionally rides in on a donkey, which fulfills the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Now that doesn't mean much to you, but honestly, it is a comparatively humble scene. Because when any other people group would receive their king coming into a city, it wouldn't be on a little donkey. It would be on the most majestic steed that you could find. It would be blazing and brilliant, the most powerful horse in the land. The king would ride into the city gates with pomp and splendor, with the fear of the people bowing down before him. And Jesus, what does he do? He's the king over all of those kings. But Jesus finds a little old donkey. And he hops upon the donkey, and somebody, some no-name person's leading the donkey along, and Jesus is just riding in on the donkey, humble until the very end. Not swayed by the applause. Not filled with this, what could have been, the Bible doesn't say it ever was, but could have been a momentary decision to say, I will be their king. This will be my generation. And he would have been king to all of those that were living at that time, but he came to do something more. It's a wise follower of God who refuses to settle for the momentary neon reception of the crowds and instead she or he presses into something more that God has. And that's what Jesus was doing. And so in verses 17 through 18, um, we find that crowds then, just like crowds today, they're, they, they're zealous towards sensationalized stuff. In John's own record here, I'm not being pessimistic. This is why the crowd was growing. It says it right there. The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they were continuing to bear witness. In other words, they were continuing to tell everybody about Lazarus being raised from the dead. That is the reason why the crowd went to meet him uh, was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So mark it down. This is the nature of crowds. They want to see something cool. They want to see something exciting. They want to see something dramatic. They want to connect to something that is for them, will help them, will bless them. And they're eager to get in on something when it's dramatic and sensational and awesome and cool. Signs and wonders and miracles and healings and, and all of the supernatural stuff. And listen, I'm for all of that stuff. I'm not preaching against that stuff. But what I'm telling you is not everybody that gets excited about that is committed to Jesus. Because there wasn't anybody saying, oh, Zechariah, the ancient prophet, he prophesied that our Messiah would be riding in on a donkey. You know why? Because the donkey means nothing to them because the donkey's not cool. <laughs> Fulfillment of what we might consider kind of a mundane prophetic word, that doesn't hit the Richter scale on cool stuff that moves the crowds. And yet Jesus was intentional about um, doing what he was doing in the audience of one. See, Father, I am fulfilling what was written of me. I want to honor you in every point. Not one prophecy will be left undone. While it may not move the crowd, friends, I want to tell you, a biblical truth is still near and dear to the heart of God. And whereas you can pack a house all the time, I'm going to meddle a little bit, you can pack a house all the time with all of the supernatural rah-rah 
and you can, you can, you can amp it up, you can, you can market it, you can do whatever you want, and I'm going to tell you, it'll always draw a crowd. But let us never mistake the size of a crowd for the level of consecration. And so that's the nature of the crowds. Now, that's about as tough as it's going to get today. So if you survive that part, you're doing great. It's here in this scene that things start to shift. And this is where I just start watching Jesus. I'm watching him because the crowd is abuzz. The people are hailing him. He's riding in on the donkey. The city is electric. It's Passover where it's a, the week of feast. And they're, they're all moving towards this big Passover exclamation point at the end of the week. Now, look at the extent. We're going to see the nature of our calling because it's here. It's in the midst of all of this that Jesus highlights a key component of your calling as a believer, of my calling as a believer, and we can't miss it. We have to remember this. We have to hold to this. This is a non-negotiable for all of us. And it, it happens in this context. Look, look in verses 19 through 22. Watch what's happening with Jesus' fame. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. They're saying this to one another. Look, the world has gone after him. They're not happy about that. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, there were also some Greeks, some Gentiles. And so these Gentiles, they come to Philip and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip goes and tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. So just, I, I just want you to get this. Happening simultaneously are the swelling uh, waves of confidence among the, the common Jewish people that this is their Messiah. Happening parallel to that are Gentiles starting to hear what is going on with this one who is the, presumably the king of the Jews. So you've got this Gentile aspect and this Jewish aspect converging all in these small set of days where the fame of Jesus is growing. And what's happening is the opposition to Jesus ain't having any of it. The Pharisees are recognizing that their power structure is crumbling that their rule over the people through traditional Judaism, which had been ornamented with all sorts of human traditions so that the actual law of God was obscured by all the traditional ornaments that were hanging on it. And so they're so upset, and they can't do anything about it. It's hard to fight against somebody that raises the dead. I don't know what you've got to top that. You know, you, they, there was nothing they could do, and the crowds were now going heartily after Jesus. And so the Pharisees, who, by the way, were biblically informed, immaculately, meticulously moral, highly conservative, very sincere, but completely wrong when it came to Jesus. And now, when they can't fight him, they start fighting each other. I know I'm not supposed to enjoy that, but I do. I love it when just every now and then when legalists can't do something that they want to do to the Lord or the Lord's followers, they, because it's in their nature to fight with somebody about something, and so they just start fighting each other. And that's what's happened here. So, but my point in addressing all of that, it was, a, it was a highly, it's building towards a climax. Gentiles are coming. Jews are testifying. The, leader, the uh, religious leaders are, are so upset and don't know what to do that they're fighting with each other. Now watch this. The last thing that was said to Jesus was Philip and Andrew coming to him say, Lord, we've, we've not only got the people that are ready to receive you, Lord, these Gentiles have heard about you. The, the Gentiles are asking about Yeshua. They're asking about the Messiah. And note Jesus' answer in verses 23, 24, and 25. Jesus an answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, pause there for a minute. We'll come back to the other verse. When, when they would have heard that part, if that was a standalone thing, let me tell you what they would have heard. They would have heard Jesus saying, yes, now is the time. Let my glory come to me. And they would have interpreted that through a temporary geopolitical political king, Messiah, to come and be enthroned to rule the people. If he had stopped there, Philip and Andrew would have said, yes, he's affirmed, confirmed it. Now is the time. The people have shouted it. The Gentiles are starting to press into it. And Jesus has said, yes, now it's the hour of my glory. But he didn't stop there. Because his idea of glory 
is different than our idea of glory. Verse 25, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he adds this teaching moment. Whoever loses, excuse me, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, I could, really, I could, I could spend the rest of our time together just going over and parsing out what he said there, and that's not what I want to do. I want to enter into what he was saying from the heart, not so much breaking down what he was saying theologically, that's important, but Jesus is looking at Philip and Andrew, and he's hearing all the, the swirl of the crowd. He's, he's been told that the Gentiles are coming, the Pharisees are fighting with each other. He's just declared it. It's his hour of glory. It has finally arrived. And then he says, and it's going to involve me dying. It's not involving me being enthroned. Not the way you guys are thinking about it, Philip, Andrew. It's involving my death. And let me tell you guys, I want you to pay close attention because this is what I'm calling you into. It's not just about me dying. I am going to be the grain of wheat that falls into the ground and I'm going to be buried and I'm going to die, but I will not abide alone. I will bring forth much fruit. By the way, just quick, you're part of the fruit he was referencing there. If you're saved, you are clearly part of what he's referencing there. And then he adds this and he says, and this is a principle for all of us because whoever loves his life in this world is going to lose it but if you'll hate your life in this world you will find life everlasting what is he talking about he's not talking about an ongoing endorsement of that perpetual phase that many teenagers get in when they're well i hate my life i hate my life i hate my life I did that as a teenager. Most teenagers go through that phase where it's woe is me. That's not what he's endorsing. He's not saying that's the way we need to live. What he's saying is that you treat your life in the temporary aspect of it, the material aspect of it, the self-centered potential of it. You treat it with contempt when it comes against the eternal components of the kingdom. In that sense, you say, I must deny myself I must hate every temptation that wants to root me in a temporary perspective, a here and now perspective. It's an all about me perspective or I got to get mine perspective. Lord, I've got to die to that so that I can press in to eternal life, not simply going to heaven, but the, the character of eternal life. The character of eternal life is not simply you go to heaven when you die. The character of eternal life is that you're like Jesus right now. So Jesus is literally taking their concept of what it means for him to be glorified. He's saying, no, you have got it wrong. I actually have to die. And so do you. This is the nature of our call calling. He, he, he unpacks it. By the way, if you think I'm missing misinterpreting verse 24 and 25 he interprets it himself in verse 26 if anyone serves me he must follow me and where I am there will my servant be also if anybody serves me the father will honor him listen here's the key to that statement where I am that's where my servant will be wherever I go my servant's coming with me where, where whatever I say yes to so does the one following me. Whatever I am willing to endure as they follow me, they are willing to endure it. He's saying this. He's saying, guys, you're not getting your geopolitical Messiah uh, who's at whose right hand you're going to hopefully sit. This is not happening right now. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to bring forth much fruit. And if you are truly my servant, I want to know this. Are you willing to follow me? Yes, Lord, we'll follow you. No, I'm not done yet. Are you willing to follow me even to becoming a grain of wheat that falls into the ground yourself and dies? I think in the heart of the Lord right now, he is, he's recognizing a couple of things are, are happening. That this is the hour. He's about to say that. 
and that the, the, the stark reality is, is the vast majority of the people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that came, comes in the name of the Lord, hail our king. The vast majority of them are going to turn on him in just a few days, and instead of saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed are you, they're going to say, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Mark it down. It's the same week, and it would have been some of the same people who were hailing him with palm branches on this day that on the day of his trial are going to be screaming out for him to be killed. That's why we're never swayed by the, the opinions of people. That's why we're never, and especially if you're a leader in the room, you never dictate your steps based on what the followers demand. Why? Especially in the kingdom. Because if anything, we've all proven that that crowds are fickle and what they want on one day they'll hate the next day Jesus I believe is in this passage when he's saying if you say you belong to me you really have to follow me wherever I go and wherever I am I can look over my shoulder and if you're real you're going to be there with me and I think what we're seeing there is he he's literally beginning to unpack this idea of he wants those who love him enough to follow him all the way into rejection, shame, betrayal, and death. Now, I know that there is a line of theology, and it's an unbiblical line. I believe it's heretical that says because Jesus did all of that, you don't ever have to do any of that. You don't have to be associated with him and be rejected. You don't ever have to be betrayed. You don't ever have to be stigmatized because of your commitment to Jesus. You never have to put up with anything in the world or from the devil or any of that because you're above it because he did it all. And it takes, um, I want to be kind here, but it takes a, a, a fair amount of presumption to be able to conclude that Jesus hasn't called us to follow and fellowship with him in his sufferings. Because the Bible is very clear, that's exactly what we're called to do. And so Jesus is beginning to say here, so stay with me, we're gonna get down into verses 27 uh, through 33, and we're gonna look at the nature of his commitment. Now, um, this is where, Lord, help us to feel the heart of your son here. Help us to feel the heart of what Jesus felt. Look at the weight that he carried in verse 27. This, these are his words. Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Guys, we, we just have to go there. This is where the absolute aloneness that is only going to build over the next several days up to the crucifixion. It begins right here. Now, I understand that Jesus as God is, is omniscient. And I, 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 please feel free to disagree with me here. But the Bible also says that he grew in wisdom. That'll, that'll mess with your, your mind a little bit. He's omniscient as God, but he grew in wisdom and stature. So there may be a component here that as Jesus listens to the Father, taking upon himself the form of a human, the form of a servant, a servant, being tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, but he submitted himself unto the limitations of the human experience in many occasions, never using his divine powers for anything other than to bring pleasure to the Father and good to the people that he was called to serve. Jesus didn't do parlor tricks with his divine power. He used the power that he was given to please the Father. And it may very well be that in these moments, as he sees the crowd calling out his name as their Messiah, as he sees the Gentiles beginning to migrate in, as he recognizes, because he says, now is the hour of my glory. Now. It's almost as if he is manifesting full, complete awareness of it. And in the backwash of, a, of a, what that means, because he knows it involves the cross. He knows it. He knows he's going to have to die. And all of a sudden, he realizes the moment is here. That may be a stretch for some of your theology. I'm fine with you disagreeing on me, but I'm telling you, that's how I'm processing it internally. And what he says, he says it out loud. He's an external processor in this moment. He doesn't keep it in. He is the Son of Man who is the Son of God, says, I am troubled about this. We sometimes picture him as so divine 
that the humanity aspect was just kind of a formality, and it wasn't. This is why I can look to him, and I can know that he empathizes and understand and is moved with the feelings of my own weaknesses, your own weaknesses. And as he says it, he says, I am troubled in my soul. By the way, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would say, my soul is now exceedingly sorrowful. It it intensified. By the time he got to Gethsemane, the isolation aspect was even more. His disciples are sleeping. Some of them were about to flee and abandon him. And Jesus is in the process of being made into sin. He became sin. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. And so that making of sin involves an aspect that we rarely think of. The horror of Jesus going through what he went through was not merely the physical pain and the relational abandonment and the public spectacle of his shame as he was crucified, nude to a cross. That was bad enough, but the the cup, the dregs in the cup that he had to drink was the fact that the Father forsook him. The Father, with whom he was eternally bound, turned his back on the Son, refusing to look on the Son as the Son was made into sin. So there has never been anyone on earth, not you, not me, nor the the, the saddest case we've ever come across. There's nobody on earth that has ever experienced isolation and loneliness like the Son of God did on this week. Everybody, including the Father, turned his back on him. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is not merely fulfilling messianic psalms when he's saying that. He is asking a question in agony of his soul. I am forsaken. This is the full weight of the wrath of the Father against sin. He said, but I'm not going to cry to the Father to save me from this hour because this is why I came. Do you see it? Pressing through the agony of it and saying, this is my calling. This is the Father's will for me. Verse 28. Here's how he made it through. How did he make it through as the Son of Man? Father, Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it. They said that it had thundered. Others said an angel just spoke to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I believe in this going back and forth in the conversation. Jesus is saying, I am sorrowful in my soul, but this is why I came. And it is almost that he himself is pressing in in absolute obedience to the Father and fullness of surrender. I I believe this. I believe in his humanity. He did not want to do it. I think that in his humanity, don't, don't misquote me, in his humanity, it was overwhelming. That's why he said, if there's any, any way other way, let this cup pass from me. But if there's not another way, then let it, your will be done. Don't minimize that struggle. And in this moment, he's saying, this is why I came. So, Father, you must be glorified. Glorify your name. You see, friends, when you live for your own glory, you'll always sell out for yourself. But when you, in his case, living for the glory of the Father, in our case, living for the glory of the Son, that is how we endure. That is why we don't give up. That is why we press in, we press on, we pay the price. If we suffer, we don't suffer alone, but we may suffer. If we are stigmatized, persecuted, mistreated, if there ever comes a day in this land where, I mean, I'm having a hard time processing the the dismay in the church over, oh no, we might lose our tax exemption on our, our financial contributions to the kingdom. I'm thinking, if you stumble in your faithfulness over that, Oh my word, you are so not ready for what's coming. This is how we endure because we are no longer living for our own glory. We are no longer making it about us. It's the only way we will endure. 
to the degree that our lives, our purposes, our priorities, our passions, our setup that we have crafted for ourselves, to the degree that it's centered or hinged or the final straw is it can't require X, fill in the blank, this of me, then we won't endure. But if we have died like the scripture says we have, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life shall appear, then shall you appear with him in glory. That's Colossians 3, but you and I are dead. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet it's not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. So there's already for the Christian a place where we acknowledge that we are dying to ourselves. It's not about us. But friends, crucifixion, as I've said so many times, is a slow death. Just because you got saved doesn't mean you're dead yet. You are to reckon yourself as dead. We are living sacrifices. We're on the altar dying. But friends, I'm going to tell you, there's always a little bit more of Jeff Lyle that Jeff Lyle needs to die to. And it's probably true with most of you that are listening. But nobody could help Jesus. This was Jesus doing it all on behalf of you and I who couldn't do it all. Verses 28 through 30, he says, Father, glorify your name. The Father says, I have and I'll do it again. Two other times had the Father spoken over the Son during Jesus' earthly ministry at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then the Father just says, and I will do it again. And I believe that's the reference to all of the events surrounding the crucifixion, where the sun was snuffed out, where the veil of the temple was rent, where the clouds came in. I think the Father was alluding to that. And then Jesus says to the crowd that was there that was saying, was that an angel? Was that thunder? Isn't that amazing? God is actually speaking something incredible, and you've got some people who say, oh, God, all people are too religious. Man, that was thunder. There's a natural explanation for that. That crowd lives on today. And then you've got other people that thought it was supernatural, but were coming in a little bit low under the radar. It's like, why no, why, it's not just an angel. That just, they, they literally, the voice of the Creator just spoke over the scene. And nobody got it. They knew something had happened, but they didn't know what it was. And so the last couple of verses, here's the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. Look at what he says. This is going to take me a few minutes to work through this, so bear with me, okay? Now is the judgment of this world. I don't want you to miss verse 27. Now. It was in the moment. This is happening in the moment. Jesus is seeing this in the moment. Now is my soul troubled, verse 27, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And verse 33 lets us know without any doubt he was speaking of his crucifixion. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the nature of Jesus' commitment. He will press through to glorify the Father, paying the ultimate price, never quitting, never turning around, enduring whatever was required of him so that he might bring the greatest weight of glory to the Father. By the way, that's what he's talking about when he says the grain of wheat must fall to the ground, humility, be buried, death, and then it'll be raised up to bring more, more fruit. And, and, and again, that wasn't just for him, that's us. He says, because where, where I am, my servant's going to be right there with me. So if I'm pressing in for the glory of another, you're pressing in for the glory of another. If I'm falling down in humility, you're going to fall down in humility. If, if I'm going to die, you're going to die, where it might not be a physical death, but it will be something more excruciating. Dying to your flesh is harder than dying in the flesh. Yeah. And being raised back up is the end. Look at what he said was going to accomplish. He says, now is the judgment of this world what, what is he talking about? Jesus is saying, okay, it's all happening right now. This begins it. I'm going to be paying the judgment for all of the sin of mankind. I'm going to judge this world. People will no longer wonder how exceedingly sinful sin is. I'm going to prove it. I understand that you and I are gospel numb. 
Most of us have been in enough church services, heard enough sermons, been around the gospel story long enough to where we hear the facts of the gospel that Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was beaten. They plucked the beard off his face. They filleted his back open. They beat him. They pummeled him. They mocked him. They crowned him with thorns. They put a robe on him. They put a rod in his hand. Then they hit him with that rod. And then they hung him up naked after they made him carry the timbers across his back up the hill. And then they mocked him there. And then he died. And then he rose again three days later. And salvation is secure. We've heard that so much that we've, we just fail to feel it anymore. Listen, I'm not, I'm not being indicting. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just saying I, I know this is true for me. My, my, my whole life is just submerged in all things Christian. And I have to get quiet and alone and just say, God, I need you to speak to my heart. You've got my mind already with the truth. I need, I need to feel my, my Savior is worthy of me feeling something. Something. To know that the cost for my sin required his agony. He didn't just die for you. He died because of you. And we are so, listen, let's just be grown-ups here. We are so drawn to celebrate what he did for me. And it's worthy of celebration. But it's not worthy of our exclusive focus. It means, yes, he did do it for you. But the reason he did it for you is because he had to do it because of you. And that, that has to get us again. It has to grip our hearts again. In a world full of temptation, if we can remember these kind of things, then saying no to a temptation isn't, wow, I kept the rule. It's, Jesus, I pressed through the temptation to honor you because I know you love me. And I want to show my love for you by saying I will endure, I will press on, I will die to myself. He says the ruler of this world will be cast out. Don't, don't um, gloss over that. Jesus was, was very clear, as Scripture is, that Satan has some level of authority in the world. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, according to the Apostle John. And Jesus, by dying, takes Satan's greatest weapon, which is death, and Jesus, by raising from the dead, effectively took Satan's greatest, greatest weapon and destroyed it. Satan doesn't have a higher weapon. Satan's greatest weapon, which, which captures men and women's souls forever, is death. And Jesus just showed Satan, or would show Satan, when he rose from the grave. He said, you fired your greatest weapon at me. I took every ounce of it in me, and I beat you. And he did do that for us. And that's got to mean something. Guys, it's got, it's got to mean something. It, my great fear, the older I get, is that my pursuit of truth and doctrine, both in my private life and in my public ministry life, has been so resolute that I've done it at times at the expense of leaving my heart behind while my mind chased after truth. And now I'm willing to slow down. I'm, I'm not even maxing out the truth I already know. I don't need to be pursuing new truth. I need to go back and get my heart to come into alignment with the truth that is already so clear that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory who was the wheat, a grain of wheat that fell to the ground and died because of me, rose on my behalf, took Satan's greatest weapon and said, what else you got? And then he's drawing all people to himself. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When he's speaking of being lifted up from the earth, he's, he's prophesying the cross that would find him in a few days. They would nail him to it while it's laid down, and then while he's nailed to it, they would lift it up, and then in the ground there would be a, a hole dug, and they would set the uh, vertical beam in that hole and it would rock and then it would stabilize and there he was suspended between heaven and earth as the offering for your sin and my sin and Jesus said when people see that and they understand that 
I will draw them. We are saved if we are saved because of all that he's done. He pressed in. He endured. He experienced the rejection of the Father so that you would not have to. He experienced human abandonment, and he's the only one who can honestly say that he was fully forsaken by God in that way. Everybody else had a chance. Everybody else had an opportunity. But Jesus took upon the fullness of the wrath of God. And when he was buried and rose again three days later and rendered the greatest weapon of Satan absolutely null and void, this is all he's saying. He's saying, I did all of the work. I've drawn you to myself. I leave one thing for you to decide. Will you bow before me? Will you bow everything you know about yourself before everything you know about me? Because that my offer is eternal life. My offer is that you will be with me in paradise forever. My offer is, is that you will be a co-heir of God in me. That is my offer, but it requires one thing from you, absolute full surrender to my glory and my lordship. I don't want a part of your, part of your heart in some religious come into my heart prayer I want every bit of you to come and surrender before me to the best of your ability. I will save you. I will secure you. I will deliver you. You will be mine forever and ever and ever. That's the clarity of the gospel. The clarity of the gospel is not go to church on Sunday, stop your favorite sin, don't go to R-rated movies that have nudity and foul language and go to church on Sunday. That is not the gospel. So, well, what about the prayer? It's not praying that prayer. Your trust is not in a prayer that you prayed. The devil will pray that prayer. The devil will come to church. The devil will forego the R-rated movies. If that was what was required, let me tell you what the devil will never do, and that's what separates this Christian from the devil. The devil get baptized, by the way. He's happy to get baptized. But the devil will never do this. He will never willingly bow his heart to the Son of God and say, I worship you and surrender to you as Lord. That's what separates the Christian from the devil. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet this morning. I want us to operate in clarity. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Friends, the hour is late, not today, the hour is late. It's late in the game. We're in the back end of the season. And one of the things that I see the Lord doing, and I don't just see it here, I see it with men and women of God that I'm talking to in various parts of the nation, other parts of the world even. There is the reality coming that judgment must first begin where? And the Lord is sounding a clarion call to people who are in churches, people who are attached to Christianized activity. He's sounding a clarion call. He's saying, in essence, and he's a loving father, but he's saying this. He's saying, you need to get real. You need to get real. There's very little time left. I don't have a tidy way to do an invitation for decisions this morning. All I know is this. I can't be an unfeeling Christian. I can't be driven by theology or gifts or religious hours of meeting on Sundays and Wednesdays and Tuesdays. We need to get our hearts back into alignment with the heart of the Son of God who looked around at everything that was happening and recognized, oh, it's, it's the hour of my glory. It's time for me to fall to the ground and die. And that's the call on your life and my life too. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and I'm just gonna pray over us. And then I'm gonna invite you whenever you're ready, if you wanna come and kneel. I believe wholeheartedly there's some people, you've been around church and Christian stuff your whole life. You need to come and surrender your life to Jesus today. You need to fully surrender your life to Jesus. He'll deliver you. He'll set you free right here in this room. 
And so, Lord, I'm asking that whatever heart that you have prepared, wherever we find ourselves right now, don't leave us in any form of a counterfeit of what you came to offer. If we have ever in our lives, Lord, settled for too little too soon, then Holy Spirit, come right now. Prick our conscience. Pierce our hearts. Let us come and do that exchange that is required before the end of the age. Let us exchange whatever that lesser form of love and devotion to you is. Let us come and lay down a heart of stone and receive a heart of flesh. I'm asking across this mission base, Lord, for IHOP Atlanta, Newbridge Church. I'm asking that we would be burning lamps full of oil. I'm asking, Lord, that we wouldn't be fake flames. We don't want to be neon, Lord. We want to be organic. We want to be real. We want to be true. I'm asking, God, that you would sweep in with the spotlight of your holiness and show us in love wherever there are counterfeit places. And God, if the whole thing has been a counterfeit, have mercy, oh God. Have mercy for today. We hear a voice of grace and we see Jesus lifted up, drawing us unto him, and we cannot resist. Thank you for mercy. And God, I pray that there would be in this house, in churches in our city, I pray, God, that you would not relent in destroying religious deception from the Bible belt. That belt has become a noose that is suffocating life out of the church. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, keep coming after us. Keep tearing down the religious counterfeits. Keep toppling our sacred cows. Keep calling us, Jesus, deeper into your heart. We don't want to dabble. We want immersion. So come, Holy Spirit, speak where you want to speak. Call to life those that are spiritually dead. Bring repentance on those who have compromised their testimony. Let them to know today is an offer of grace. Hallelujah. Grace. Hallelujah. Grace. Hallelujah. Let there be no condemnation where there is repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.